0: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
1: Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jeff Kosas. Jeff is the Senior Procurement Executive for the General Services Administration, and we uh, have a uh, host of uh, interesting topics, lots and lots of things to try to get through today. And, you know, of course, if we don't get through them all, Jeff, I'll have to just invite you back again. So welcome to the show.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Uh, delighted to be here and always happy to get deep into acquisition-erdom. So let's go yeah,
1: Well, that's right. We're, we're, we're acquisition geeks, so this will be a lot of fun. So first of all, let's just, um, you know, as you're... Re- role as senior procurement executive, and you're also, you know, FAR council and that, you know, manage the FAR, you know, the FAR staff procurement policy. There's a lot going on in that area. And I'd like to talk about some of that. And at first, I guess, just as you've rightly pointed out, the implications of it um, are significant across the market and across industry and government. That's section 889 in the implementation. And I just want to get your thoughts on that and where it is and how it's going and what you're seeing.
2: Absolutely. For folks who don't uh, speak in numbers, 889 is the statutory uh, provision that's really starting to put a focus on uh, supply chain risk management. It was a prohibition on U.S. government dealing with uh, specific uh, telecommunication providers and, and services from the People's Republic of China. It was a two-part uh, ban, uh, very originally we called Part A and Part B. Part A is saying, hey uh, government, you cannot go buy uh, the products from these five uh, telecommunication companies uh, Huawei, ZTE, Hytera, Hike Vision, Dehua. Part B is the more complicated part. Part B was saying that, hey government, you can't go do business with other companies who are using this technology. So over the last year, you've seen the FAR Council implement this. Uh, we went through two interim rules to implement the Part A ban, the uh, don't use the stuff. We implemented two interim rules to deal with the Part B. Uh, on Part A, we received 17 public comments. On Part B, we received 89 uh, public comments. Over the months ahead, we wanna get to two final rules, one for Part A, one for Part B. In getting to a final rule, we really wanna be thinking about the re- input that we've received. We want to consider what we learned from that implementation, and we want to then finalize that in the new rule. But, Roger, it's also a question of how are we making this clear and useful on the GSA side. Uh, what we've had to do is implement this through two class deviations and an acquisition letter, things that are providing our workforce and our industry base a little more clarity. Uh, we've provided a series of uh, FAQs, decision trees, uh, provision clause tables, Uh SCRIM criteria, and so forth. We've done a whole series of industry events and acquisition workforce training events. And we've tried to make sure that all the information is available in public. So all of the uh, material is posted on acquisition.gov on the 889 uh, page. All the recordings are posted there as well. Uh, and finally, uh, GSA has stood up our own SCRIM review board to help our country officers understand how do we work through the implementation challenges that this. Uh, standard created for us
1: one of the things that you all did right is don't you have kind of a a hierarchy of contracts that are implicated by it in a certain sense right in the schedules context like whether it's you know in terms of whether the type of supplies being provided or on the contract or not and that's kind of that decision tree that you're looking at and helping contracting officers through
2: We're trying to ensure that we are taking a risk-based approach, that we're understanding where we're at greater or lesser risk, but the underlying statute itself is very broad and very clear, so the point on the risk-based approach is more to let us figure out how do we best manage and entertain the risk, how do we uh, move forward, where might it be appropriate to look at an agency-level waiver for the brief period it's available, but this is a very tough, very demanding requirement. It's a response to some great threats that our nation is facing. There's a reason that both Congress and the administration took a very strong stand in this area.
1: Yeah, the the Part B and the use of the equipment that that is is that the biggest challenge that the statute is so broad about use that um, you know trying to drill down with the certifications and then review of what how that use plays within the company is central to the company operations. That's really the the tough part, isn't it? You're saying?
2: Oh, absolutely. That is the tough part. That's the part that we're having uh, ongoing dialogue with our industry partners, with our uh, federal agency uh, customers, uh, with uh, the security community, just trying to make sure we have a common understanding of what that means and how we respond to it, uh, how we rethink supply chains, how we, re- Uh, do market research to be prepared or to engage differently because of it
1: right but uh, yeah that's a that's a tough one and there's more to come i'm sure yes whether it's the final rule or just how government and industry work together to address it so there's more to come there and i know there's more to come i'm going to shift topics when i'm going to start with another number section 876 which provided the ability for civilian agencies and gsa in the context of the schedules contracts and to focus on competition at the task order level in lieu of evaluating price at the contract level. And I know you've been doing some listening sessions. It's a, it's more complicated, I think, than people think in terms of how you would implement that. And your listening sessions are open to the public and that sort of thing. So what have you been hearing with that regard? And you had a, a, an advance notice of public rulemaking too. Absolutely.
2: Let me talk uh, about all that. The basic authority and in- 876, as you just suggested, uh, that's something that's all about increasing competition Competition at that task order level. That's where the game is really played. So the authority is pretty cool. It lets GSA and other civilian agencies award contracts without having to worry about those uh, pesky hourly rates, ones that are actually don't have a whole lot of meaning because they're set in the absence of competition. So We think there's a couple of key benefits and I'd like everyone to understand those. One, it sharply reduces the barriers to entry, especially for small businesses. We think it reduces administrative costs and contract compliance costs. And we think it's going to accelerate contract awards. Uh, We're going to be able to eliminate a whole lot of administrative work. We've got a bifurcated implementation. We're working with the fire with the fire council trying to address the portion that applies to GWACs and other IDIQ contracts. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I've just signed off on a deviation to our, our new Astro procurement, a, a new multi award IDIQ. For, uh, Astro is for uh, services related to manned, uh, unmanned and uh, optionally manned platforms. I thought that was a terrific place to start. We didn't want to start with the schedules program. Testing this out first in Astro, it's a clean start vehicle. There's dozens, not thousands of uh, contracts uh, that we're dealing with, and GSA places all the orders. So you just mentioned uh, the advance notice of proposed rulemaking, that we thought was an essential place to start the dialogue when it comes to uh, the schedules program. Normally we don't start with an advance notice, normally we start with a proposed rule. It's pretty unusual that we'd start that early, but what we're trying to do is maximize industry engagement. Uh, We followed up the advance notice with a series of virtual listening sessions. Uh, We scheduled five one-hour sessions and they're pretty simple. They're saying, hey, come and talk to us virtually these days. Tell us your thoughts about the rule. Uh, We're about midway through and they've been really terrific, very helpful sessions. We've heard a lot about transparency and how the key to making this authority work is to implement a whole lot of transparency in and around how it works. Uh, We've heard lots of viewpoints on what this is going to mean for small business, uh, and whether or not it really will reduce barriers to entry and make it easier for small businesses. Uh, Something I didn't expect, but I've been hearing a lot, is what this means in the world of uh, cooperative purchasing. Not something, frankly, I thought would be part of this role, but a lot of input about cooperative purchasing. So what comes next? Well, we want to finish up the industry listening sessions, but then we want to shift and start running a series of customer and stakeholder conversations. You know, any rule, including on advance notice, goes through an intergovernmental clearance process. There's a lot of interest from the federal community in this. We even added some questions to our ANPR in response to the comments we got from customer agencies. So as we get into the uh, new calendar year, we're going to spend a good amount of time working with federal agencies, understand their concerns, uh, all before we issue a uh, proposed rule. Expect it to be late spring or even summer before you see a uh, proposed rule hit the street. When it does hit the street, it's going to be well-informed by listening to industry, by listening to our customers, by listening to our stakeholders.
1: That's, yeah, that's great. And um, I, I might have I have a follow-up question just about you know the balance between how, how are you going to thread a needle with that role or just what you're thinking about. And that's like, you know, the customer reliance on negotiated prices versus the access to the market and how that all play out. And then maybe we can turn to acquisition workforce after that. So when we come back from the break, so my guest today is Jeff Kosis. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to off the shelf on federal news network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosas. Jeff is the Senior Procurement Executive at the General Services Administration. There's a lot going on at GSA these days, Um, you know, from a policy perspective, workforce perspective, pandemic response. We'll get into that a little later. Um, But Jeff, you know, just want to finish up on the conversation around Section 876 and um, then get on into the workforce a little bit. My question to conclude is, People are generally very pro- positively disposed to the concept of you know the the you know, not evaluating price of the contract level for the rare reasons you say that you know competition is driven by requirements at the task order, but at the same time there is the one area where customer agencies do rely on GSA negotiating you know, like fair and reasonable rates, and especially if you're doing a, in where it's really relevant is when you're doing a time material or labor hour order, the agencies you know, do their own analysis, but, you know, they have the luxury or the ability to rely on GSA to streamline that analysis in a certain sense. And how do you handle that? So just any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. We've heard that viewpoint. Uh, I mentioned that we got a number of comments in the clearance process on our advance notice. They were very much in and around that theme. We're very sensitive to the concern. We want this rule to reduce administrative burden we don't want it to, to transfer the burden from GSA to our federal agency partners that's part of why our game plan is to spend uh, much of uh, the first few months of the new calendar year working with the federal agencies talking through a couple of different approaches to that question and ensuring that what we end up producing is not going to create new work and new challenges for them but instead we'll let them uh, run faster we'll let them see even better competition pursuing those opportunities. So no, we don't have a definite answer, but we are asking that question and we are looking forward to engaging not just industry, but our partners and our stakeholders in answering that question well.
1: I'm looking forward to that dialogue, that conversation. It it gets to the heart of the whole, you know, schedules and uh, competition. It's all those balancing that you have to do in policy, right, right, Jeff?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. It's the whole acquisition system is just one incredible balancing act.
1: Yeah. Um, with all kinds of different stakeholders. And one of the key stakeholders is uh, the acquisition workforce, obviously. And I know that's a big priority of yours. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about what's going on from a government-wide perspective that you're working on. And, you know, then we can drill down a little bit what you're doing at GSA as well. So government-wide?
2: Sounds great. Government-wide, GSA manages the Federal Acquisition Institute. If you're an acquisition employee in the, a civilian agency, you're familiar with uh, FAI, and you're familiar with uh, Fadus. Now, you'll notice, I'm not going to say that you love Fadus, but you know FATUS. FATUS is the system of record for acquisition certification and for warrants. It's also the online registration home where you go to get your acquisition training from among the 600 FAI course offerings. Roger, right now, we're in the middle of transitioning from that government-unique system to a commercial SaaS solution. Uh, We're moving to Cornerstone On Demand. Uh, DAU's already made that jump. But as you can imagine, any migration of that size is complicated. When you have to move 180,000 employees to a a new system to introduce new uh, business processes and to even get used to the idea of living and buying commercially rather than going with a SaaS solution very different right now we're working configuration sprints with several agencies and as we move into the new year we have more agencies who are going to come in and really help us work through that transition so that's a once in a decade a pretty major challenge for us on the government wide side
1: so what's the timeline on that i mean that is a that is a major when you're talking about 180,000 000- employees that rely on the system. Uh, What's your timeline?
2: Uh, We have been doing configuration sprints for the last two to three months. uh, And we are looking to uh, move the training schools uh, and then the other civilian agencies uh, between April and June of the new year.
1: And so, and the systems are one thing, right? And implementing that. But it's sometimes I think it's even harder just to get folks across the government trained up on how to use the new system. Is that, I mean, that's going to be a big challenge as well, isn't it?
2: Uh, It is definitely going to be a new challenge. Uh, There's going to be new screens, new names of functionality, new things to discover. But we see a lot of advantages uh, in going with a uh, SaaS solution. We think there's going to be, you know, that basic ability to take advantage of the emerging best practices and to go with all the capabilities of a learning management system. Any transition is hard, but at the other end, we think it's going to produce some really good results for our
1: folks. Yeah, but much better management of the information. And, you know, and you do that, you're better able to serve the contracting workforce, right? Exactly. You
2: know, that's why we're taking the time now to make sure the hierarchies are defined right. Uh, You know, the more data we have, the better we can manage it. We're in a data world. Everything's all about uh, big data and using that to drive not just acquisition practices, but so much else today.
1: Right. So, and at GSA, what's going on?
2: Well, at GSA, one of the key functions that, of my office is running something called the procurement management reviews. Historically, this is when we go out and look at uh, contract files, make sure that they are meeting all of the standards, all the requirements. Now, historically, we focused these on pre-award activities. But uh, in uh, fiscal 2019, for the first time, I changed that to really look at contract administration. And we've learned a whole lot and identified several things we wanted to work on coming out of our focus on contract administration. Uh, Maybe the biggest area of focus that emerged for me is we have more work to do in working as one acquisition team across all the different members of the workforce. So out of that, right now, we've uh, just created a new mandatory critical element for any of our contracting officer representatives. We're early in the fiscal year, we're doing performance plans right now, and any core on active uh, delegation now has a mandatory critical element as part of their performance plan. Uh, we introduced new mandatory training for our cores uh, around things such as management of PIV cards and around performance-based acquisition. But, you know, we don't want, just want to make them take training. We want to give them a whole host of new support tools. And we've been unrolling all kinds of tools to support our, our core community, to let them access the data, the information, and the insights they need to better be part of an integrated acquisition team. So, out of all the workforce initiatives, transitioning to CSAD and uh, moving to that one acquisition team are our areas of focus.
1: Right. To me, that's an area that's uh, been under sort of served over the years, like contract administration. You know, all the mm-hmm. you know the for like the sexy stuff people always care about, right? Is, oh, that contract award and that milestone, that accomplishment. But at the end of the day, you know, it's rubber hits, hits the road when you're actually in contract performance. So you see that having returns in terms of overall, in the long run, better management of actual contract performance?
2: Oh, absolutely. The stat that I think most people away, more than 50% of all dollars are spent in contract administration. If we can really focus on the contract administration, if we make that stronger, if we better equip our course, that means that we are better able to manage projects on time and on budget.
1: Yeah. So when you think about GSA and the workforce, I mean, there's, I don't know how many contracting officers there are now or contracting acquisition workforce personnel, but they're doing all kinds of different things. You know, it's supporting the agency in its own buys. It's doing schedules contracting, which is very unique in the federal space. There's folks who are actually also then doing open market competitions and also competitions off task orders, you know, from on on the GWACs or Oasis or wherever. With all those sort of competing different functions and responsibilities for the workforce, just generally, how, how do you go about tackling that when you think about the care and feeding of the GSA workforce?
2: Uh, we have a function that makes a big difference in that. Uh, it's the acquisition career manager function. What we've done is we've termed, formed a team across a uh, federal acquisition service, across public building service, and across a uh, government-wide policy. So we've brought in uh, folks and we meet once a month and make sure that we are giving workforce and their needs and their careabouts and their challenges a dedicated area of focus. We have leads for each of those are organizations who are full-time dedicated on reaching out to the workforce, on looking at the data, because we always come back to data, on managing the trends, on communicating, on asking questions, on making sure we're asking the workforce what they need, tying that to our procurement management reviews, looking at the quality of that, tying that to our training needs, and trying that to our communication in the policy realm. I can put out all kinds of policy, but if I if it's not clear, if I don't have People can explain that to the workforce; it becomes useless policy.
1: Yeah, that is very true, Jeff. You can write the best policy in the world if nobody, you know, really, you know, understands it um, or yep. is trained up on it. You know, that it's not going to do any good. You know, we're up on the break when you come back. I just have one final sort of acquisition workforce question. Unless you have other things you want to cover, and that's really around you know the understanding the markets and the you know in, in industry sectors that one is you know working in from acquisition workforce perspective. You know, that's always something I think is invaluable for, you know, contracting for folks. And whether there's training, some of it's experiential, obviously. Just where, where you guys are, what's your thoughts on that? And then we can get into a little bit maybe on the e-commerce, just where that is, and start also talking about GSA's pandemic response and the government-wide kind of pandemic response a um, lot to cover still. So we'll do all that when we come back. Uh, my guest today is Jeff Kosas. He's the Senior Procurement Executive for the General Services Administration. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosas. He's a Senior Procurement Executive for the General Services Administration. And Jeff, um, Last segment we've been talking, we were talking acquisition workforce. And I just wanted to finish up that discussion and move on to some other topics and with one final sort of question. And that's the one I think you know is is extremely important for acquisition folks to really understand, you know, the the industries or the market sectors and how business sort of works when they're engaging with contractors awarding contracts it's that all idea you're a business advisor too not just a contracting person so you know how your thoughts on that and and how are you working or GSA is working to address that
2: we've really taken a look at IT as the first place to think about the question there so we started figuring out what does it take to be a good and effective buyer of IT services IT products and, you know, pretty quickly, we realized the competencies that we need to buy that wealth, well, they're not really in alignment with what uh, the competencies that we require under uh, FACC are today. Uh, so we added uh, several uh, different competencies that we thought were essential to that. We then uh, did some stories and tried to, a gap analysis, for lack of a better description, looking at how well are we doing in the competencies we need and what's missing. Uh, our next step was then to start figuring out how do we close the gap and what do we need to uh, equip our uh, workforce with? I have a chairman analyst uh, on my team who's really focused full-time just on this question and looking at the needs of the uh, IT acquisition workforce. Uh, what we've concluded is we want to start uh, now piloting a, a, an IT certification uh, <clears throat> focus in and around uh, acquisition, something that will have an experiential uh, Requirements. So it's going to have continuous learning requirements, and it's going to emphasize a couple of competencies that are not required within uh, FAC. Uh, things such as uh, digital communication uh, and a number of these soft skills involved in team leading, but will also focus on a much deeper subject expertise. You know, we're learning, we're iterating, we're thinking through how to do that.
1: Right. Well, that's, it sounds like a great approach and I'm sure industry would be happy to play a role and like giving folks a um, better understanding of the IT sector and just how it works and what's going on. I'm sure there's lots of engagement going back and forth on that. And then just turning now to, and we'll touch on this and then we can start looking at the pandemic response from a policy and operational perspective. But, um, so the e-commerce platform, that's section 846 at GSA was, responsible for implementing a e-commerce uh platform for customer agencies to use um you were one of the, the sort of working group you laura stanton matthew blum and mark lee were all working on that together and you know it's progressed quite a bit can you just sort of give an update on where it is and you know what you're hoping what you i mean gsa generally are hoping to learn from the rollout sure
2: gsa made our uh award to uh, three firms, uh, Amazon Business, Fisher Scientific, and Overstock uh, in late June. And then we began the rollout in mid-August. We've always talked that we are deliberately starting small, learning, iterating, refining. So at this phase, we have about 350 cardholders from six different agencies who have entered and are beginning to buy. They're seeing some clear early benefits uh, around curated product listings, around tax exemption. But what I'm more interested in is, are we going to be able to effectively manage and use the data to collect it well, to feed it back to the agencies, in a way that agencies start to use that to make better buying decisions? Can't answer that question today, but that's, I think, a central test for what this program will be.
1: Which agencies have signed up for it or do you see lots of interest across government it's just what's been the response so far
2: yeah definitely lots and lots of interest uh, we've got uh i think six agencies uh, participating at this uh point I'm, I'm not gonna think of all of them but that certainly includes uh hhs it includes uh va it includes uh gsa a couple of others who uh, are actively participating there is tremendous interest. Uh, a number of agencies see benefits in moving away from the consumer platforms and moving towards a business platform. But again, this is new. We are learning from it, and it's we don't want to move too fast or push too many agencies through this too quickly. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um, let's turn to the pandemic response, GSA's role, and supporting government the government wide response and. What were you guys, I mean, you can start anywhere you want. There's the contracting policy, all kinds of different things that GSA has been doing. Uh, I'll just leave it to you. Where do you want to start?
2: Yeah, I'm a policy guy. I want to start with policy, but let's then start moving into operations uh, pretty quickly in doing that. Back in March when we were starting this, we began in uh, what I like to classify as four major uh, buckets of uh, work. Uh, first was taking care of the needs of the acquisition workforce itself, uh, You know, because if we're not taking care of our people, we're not going to be effective in anything else that we do. Directly uh, behind that was uh, providing uh, uh, the right uh, contracting support, uh, figuring out what policies do we need to change, what tools do we need to free up, how do we make this easier for our folks to get the products and services they need. Then we want to look at what do our industry partners need to be successful? How do we support them through all the chaos? And and our final uh, work stream was looking, how do we fully enable a telework uh, environment in federal acquisition? To do that, we combed through the FAR, we combed through the GSAR, and we looked for all the different words that would require somebody to be in an office. That's things like uh, sending a uh, Mail uh, certified return receipt requested. That's asking for a raised seal. That's asking for a wet signature. So, anywhere we found any of those things, we wanted to uh, take it out of the equation. So, that's what we started on the policy end. Operationally, maybe the first really important decision that we made was that we're going to focus on using existing contract vehicles, uh, particularly our schedules program, our global supply program, and uh, Ability One. And to date, over 90 percent of our actions in our dollars were off of uh, the existing uh, contracts. You know because we uh, ran this through uh, the schedules, we knew we were dealing with trusted business partners. Uh, we weren't paying uh, prepaying for unknown foreign vendors. Uh, we had confidence that we were not going to receive counterfeit items, and we were had a really high level of competition, not 69 percent. we had to create a lot of new policy, give our schedule contractors. Uh, lots of room to bring in uh, things such as uh, disinfectants, uh, PPE, uh, sanitizers, uh, and so forth from non-traded uh, countries, something we've never done before. But we thought by far the best approach is run this through a trusted and effective platform and not uh, try and outreach to companies we don't know.
1: Yep. Let's go back to the policy things. I think... You know, that describe your description of going through the regulations to try to identify any places where, you know, the activity or action was premised on the fact you had to be in the office. That's probably a fundamental, long lasting change, it seems to me, given where how much remote work we're doing now. And it's likely not going to go back, you know, 100% the other way as well. So you could see this as a, you know, sort of setting a, a foundation for that, you know, future sort of workplace as well, Steve, do you, you share oh, that?
2: Uh, oh, uh, not only do we share that, we've been using our role on the FAR Council to share that message. You know, we've taken our experience, our deviations, and we've started turning that into a series of uh, business cases to open a series of new FAR cases and make these changes to uh, make these permanent authorities. Uh, That's one of the great questions, you know, what is going to become permanent and how will we change how we do business?
1: Yes. And you know what, the thing, when you described it too, it's like, it's the devils in the details, right? I mean, it's like you you don't think about these things until something happens and forces you to, and I, I say that just generally, that's the way the world works. That's the way organizations work. You know, we are up on the break. When you come back, I want to continue talking about the pandemic response and, and then we can talk a little bit about your role on Ability one. Um, and then I might finish up with just your, your question about your work life at GSA a little bit, so over the years. So uh, I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosas. He's a Senior Procurement Executive at GSA. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosas. He's the Senior Procurement Executive at the General Services Administration. And, you know, we finished the last segment, talked about some of the implications or successes, rewriting regulations to reflect the real-world, virtual world that we are working in now. And, you know, and most likely will be, you know, a, a facet of, you know, future work-life moving forward, regardless of the pandemic. Um, and that was a, quite an interesting change or observation that you had to address that. It's quite interesting. The other part of it that you mentioned in operationally is like focusing on pre-existing contracts and trusted third parties. And I know to me that gets into the there you're really talking about and fundamentally that's you know the integrity of the supply chain at the end of the day. You might have done a TAA waiver, you know, to be able to get additional, you know, capability to acquire certain PPE and things like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's sort of a vote about that, that. Sort of validates that idea of, you know, addressing you know supply chain risk by using trusted sources that you've already vetted. You thoughts on that?
2: That was very much the heart of our approach. We didn't want to go off on the market and start chasing companies and entities that we didn't know who were not trusted sources. But I think everyone recognizes there were enormous disruptions in the global supply chain there were huge challenges in things such as gloves, cleaning wipes, disinfectants, and so forth. So what we did was to uh, do a non-availability determination, a a waiver of uh, the Trade Agreements Act, something that we set up to uh, review every 60 days to say, has the situation changed or do we extend it? Uh, We then uh, modified our schedule contracts, letting our contractors know, hey, if you can go source this, you can now add it to the schedules contract, uh, know that it's temporary, that eventually supply chains will stabilize and will take it off. But in the meantime, we thought it was a great way to source it, and many of our vendors agreed. You know, So to give you an example, at this point, Roger, we've bought uh, 54.5 million pairs of uh, protective gloves. We've bought uh, 47 million cleaning wipes. Uh, we can go through disinfectant and hand sanitizer and all the other essential things that we've been buying because we've had some great industry partners. And because we've tried to do the business through trusted supply sources.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely a lef- lesson learned. You can, you know, some of the horror stories out there, people trying to take advantage of the situation. It's, I think, a smart business for GSA to focus on pre-existing contracts. You know, and just a, one quick question, just on remote work and, you know, your work, your direct workforce and your experience with it. Is there anything that sort of struck you about, moving to a virtual environment 100% of the time?
2: Uh, Pre-pandemic, we thought it was essential that we only hire our policy analysts in Washington, D.C. Uh, We recognize that, you know what, we've been able to work out successful virtually for almost eight months now, and that this work really can be done anywhere. So one of the changes we've already made, uh, we've started advertising our policy positions outside of D.C., and uh, I've just hired uh, people in uh, Texas and in Colorado to be part of the policy team. So lasting change are in how we're approaching working through policy issues.
1: Yeah, that, that's really interesting because I just think about, I worked in regions when I was at GSA and there's lots of talent out there, people who worked in acquisition for DOD or wherever who are in other jobs who, you, you know, now you're sort of moving them into the competitive pool for the jobs you're advertising. That's that's an interesting change as well. Now they don't necessarily have to relocate, right?
2: Uh, exactly. They, they can work from elsewhere. And we got such an incredible uh, applicant pool when we made that change.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, that's a positive development. Um, so I want to turn to Ability One and the Ability One Commission. And you are currently acting in the role of interim chairman of the Ability One Commission. And I don't know how many people really know, even know what that is. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about. What the Ability One program is, and what the commission does, and then lastly, sort of your role on it. Oh, absolutely! Thank you.
2: The Ability One program—it's the nation's largest source of employment for individuals who are blind or have significant disabilities. So, about forty-five thousand—listen uh, to that number—forty-five thousand Americans are employed uh, thanks to the program. Uh, they're all across the country; they're every state, uh, they're D.C., they're Guam. There are over a thousand different locations. Uh, the Ability One Commission itself, that's a very tiny federal agency. They oversee the uh, program. By statute, the commission has 15 presidential appointees. They represent 11 different federal agencies, and uh, there are four citizen members. Uh, the commission has a full time staff of 32. So, if you think about that, that is 32 people managing $4 billion in spend uh, across government through all these contracts. In the last few months, I think we've all come to a much better understanding of who are America's essential workers. Even before my recent appointment, I was starting to learn about uh, people working through this program and how much they are America's essential workforce. Uh, I can tell you, federal agencies could not have delivered their services without the support of that whole Ability One community. They've been providing things such as uh, personal uh, protective uh, equipment, most of those gloves and masks and gowns, uh, we can't get them uh, from many other places. Uh, we bought a, a lot from overseas. We bought a ton of them from the Ability One program. We've seen a thousand percent increase in demands. There are nonprofits that are working uh, production lines twenty-four by seven. They're sanitizing and disinfecting federal buildings, including not uh, the Pentagon, including mil- more than thirty military hospitals. Uh, they're staffing critical services dining facilities and switchboards at uh, the military bases, uh, the VA hospitals. The thing that most impressed me, 95% of the nonprofits remained open every day through this crisis. You know, that's just been an incredible number of uh, the amount, the vitality, the essential support that, uh, they're providing. So my role, uh, as the interim chair over this, it's about, uh, providing some strategic direction. It's about helping, uh, to ensure that people understand what the program is, what it has to offer, the opportunities it creates,
1: and there's also a you know there's a partnership with industry as well, um, you know that is I think an important part of the you know the Ability One program in terms of supporting the distribution of the products and that the Ability One provides is, is that is that fair to say?
2: Oh, uh, very definitely, and you know we're seeing some wonderful support from the administration as well. Dr. Wooten, the administrator of OFPP, he just signed a a memo on increasing employment for uh, uh, disabled in federal contracting. A couple of highlights of that, Roger, he asked federal agencies to appoint an Ability One program advocate uh, called an ABOR. Uh, He asked that these ABORs form an interagency team. They work together and share best practices. And he encouraged uh, agencies to uh, make a pledge of at least 1% of their spend to the Ability One program this year, 1.5% I spent next year. You know, everyone's familiar with uh, small business goals. Think of these pledges as being the same basic idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, great news. Uh, So we have about a minute, two minutes left, and um, so I just wanted. So I think we've known each other for about twenty-five years. I remember when I was just you know coming to central office in the mid-nineties in the office general counsel, and you were in the you were in a contracting officer working for the Federal Supply Service at that point, I believe. And then you worked your way up to in management, you became an assistant commissioner, you ran policy for the Federal Acquisition Service, and then ultimately became a senior procurement executive. And I guess, you know, just from your perspective, what, you know, that's a great career. And just what was it about GSA and the opportunities there that sort of brought you to where you are today? And Um, that's part of it. And then also just what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the life of the agency over your time there?
2: You know, one of the things that I have loved about GSA that's always kept me here, it's the mission that GSA has a role across government, uh, you know, behind the scenes, we are the folks who are helping each of the other federal agencies to perform, to carry out their mission whether it's providing them space, whether it's providing them technology, whether it's providing them the services and products they need. you know. So the, I can't go a day without picking up the paper and seeing a story in the news and knowing what the GSA tie into that. Uh, right now, uh, we're in the middle of the uh, election season. And uh, I think about the critical role GSA has with presidential transition. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think about the critical role GSA has in responding and addressing and treating that pandemic and helping uh, the country to meet its needs. Uh, one of the biggest changes that I've seen, it's the role of technology. Uh, it's how we are starting to uh, rethink the way that we deliver services. Uh, you know, if this pandemic had hit 20 years ago, we could not have been ready to uh, work from home for months on end. Uh, our technology wasn't there. Our knowledge of how to do these things that remotely wasn't there. So you know, everyday technology is remaking how we approach acquisition. We talked about data and how technologies, how data management is changing the way we work. And uh, as we look forward, we've entered the world of uh, robotics and how robotics is going to simplify the routine processes. It'll make us faster, it will make us more accurate, and will let us really focus on our service delivery to our agencies and on better relationship with our industry partners.
1: Yeah, yeah technology yeah it's um, and we could do a whole show just about data and, and, what, and, the, and what it's going to mean moving forward in the future and that and machine learning artificial intelligence all that good stuff and, but Jeff we've run out of time so <laughs> I want to thank my guest today Jeff Kosas he's the Senior Procurement Executive at the General Services Administration and I'm Roger Waldron you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network
0: You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.